Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. They were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his own business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad. Actually, it's in this order, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with the guests. But when the king came in, he saw, and to see the guests, he saw a man who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Will you pray with me, please? God, you have promised that as the snow falls to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing that ground to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats, so is your word. It never returns empty. And even here, I trust that's the case today. Your word is going to go forth. But we read in Hebrews that though your gospel went forth to many, there were those that didn't profit because they were not willing to mix it with faith. And yet you tell us that faith comes by hearing your word and that your word. And so, God, as you instill greater faith in us as we hear your word today. May we be wise to take that faith and further place it upon you and your word who you really are, and the call you really place on our lives. You've promised that your word is active, living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, and as a discerner intent of every intent and thought of our hearts. And God, I know that today you can sever from us those things that are unnecessary. Perform your surgery as you put us now on the table in your theater, I pray. Have your way. So, God, for that to happen, I recognize things need to happen. Your Holy Spirit needs to come upon me, Lord, in such a way that you would use me as your mouthpiece. So, God, do that, please. But also, Lord, your Holy Spirit needs to come upon us all to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. As your Spirit would say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the churches. God, give us ears to hear, to know you, and to love you, and to receive you for who you are, and to offer ourselves willingly to you. So God, here in this time, have your way. Redeem every second. May we be captivated, drawn in, and so blessed by this time. We pray your blessing on Daniel. Lord, as he's, and, and Jenny, as they're serving in children's ministry, and that today would be beautiful and profound, and God, that we could say we've encountered you in your word just as you intend for this time. So we commit every second and every breath we breathe in here to you and ask now for you to redeem them. Be glorified upon them, we pray. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be our authority. I would say don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. 
And that's, of course, what God would challenge us to test all things. Now, to put things into perspective, we are now on the Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus has descended into Jerusalem on Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. As people laid down palm branches and other branches, leafy branches. And then, of course, their cloaks as well. I'm glad it isn't called Coat Sunday. Uh, we could gladly use them here. Now, with that, Jesus ascends, takes a look. It was late. He, he, then he comes and leaves Jerusalem, never spends a night in Jerusalem. But the people there want to kill him. I wouldn't want to spend the night there either. But he actually then goes the three miles or the, the two miles, the, the Sabbath journey up the hill on the east side, the Mount of Olives. And there he spends the time in Bethany and Bethphage. So house of house of figs. Uh, and how's it days? This is sort of what we're looking at. Uh, there, uh, in between, as Jesus ascends the Mount of Olives, is Gethsemane. Gethsemane, I remind you, is the olive press where Jesus will kneel down and pray in the garden and where he will be arrested, by the way. John tells us that Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So imagine Jesus is walking by the place where he's going to have the meltdown shortly. So on Sunday, he goes in, takes a look around, leaves and goes back, assumedly to Lazarus's house, but we don't have that for sure. On Monday, Jesus comes in and he cleans the temple. He purges it, as, of course, we would expect. Even in the time of uh, the Passover, as you prepare for it, the first thing you need to do, chametz, is you have to drive out of your house all leaven. And that's what Jesus does. He goes to his house and he drives out the leaven of the, of the, uh, of the money changers, of the avarice and greed that has now parked itself in the uh, Solomon's colonnade into the area of the Gentiles. So that's Monday. Tuesday, and that's the day we're on, Jesus has returned now back into Jerusalem, into the temple area proper, and it is there that he is confronted, and it's going to be challenge day. It's going to be the day when the religious leaders each take their shot, if you will, at him. The chief priests and the uh, elders were the first group. We saw them in chapter 21, as they, of course, are responsible and have authority over the workings of the temple, we might actually say they're sort of the uh, the church warden of the day. We might say it that way. And, and and with that, they ask, of course, Jesus, as their world is, who gave you this authority? Well, what right do you think you have to do this? Jesus then responds to that with three different parables, and that is where we're at now in the third one. So we are now in this Tuesday. Jesus then will be confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then the scribes and lawyers that will come after these particular parables. Jesus will throw a question at them, stump them, and that will basically be our Tuesday. Wednesday, Jesus will point us primarily to the end of the world, if you will. And then Thursday will be the Passover where Jesus will be arrested. Friday will be the day he will be in the morning. He will be executed. Saturday will be our day of silence. And then Sunday, of course, Jesus' resurrection. So that's kind of where we're at. So if you think about it, Jesus is, in essence, two days before his arrest, three days before his murder. That's where he is, and he knows this is all going to happen. Now, with that, Jesus is giving a call. He has given us in the three parables. The first, if you remember, was the parable of, a two, of two sons. A father's house where, in essence, he sends his two sons. One says he will go, but he doesn't. One says he won't go, regrets it, and then finally does. In essence, we have the issue of responsibility. We have the reluctant and the rebellious sons. In the second situation, then Jesus then tells us, as we kind of look at that, uh, he shows us the revolting tenant farmers, those that after three different times of actually being sent twice with servants and then the third time with his son, choose to kill his son, throw, throw him out of the vineyard, kill his son. Uh, and then after that, sort of try to claim the vineyard for themselves. And what he teaches us from that, and, and the first one, the sons of irresponsibility, the second in irreverence, what he does teach us in that is this regime and tyranny of the religious leadership of the day is very well, it's coming to an end. It is now uh, on some form of expiration date. It is, it is soon to be pulled from the shelf. And we go from that to learning, well, this empty talk really means nothing. That was our first parable. And then the second again, the days of the religious tyranny is numbered. Now we get into this third one. And we went from the father's house to the father's farm and now to the family core as we go to the happiest occasion in all of the Middle East to this day. Now, as that is the case, notice it says that Jesus answered them in verse 1. We're going to tear this apart because we only have this little section to look at. Now, it's interesting. Jesus didn't say in the other two parables the kingdom of heaven is like. 
if you will, he actually was inferring, and because we read at the end of it that the religious leaders knew they were speaking of him. So if you will, Jesus was saying, if you will, the religious leadership of the day is like. They're like two sons. Well, you have the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors who are actually showing up at church. Uh, they're kind of like the reluctant son, the son who really, he said he wouldn't go, but in the end he regretted it and finally came. On the other side of it, the religious leadership, well, they were kind of like the son who said he would go, but he didn't. So he was all about lip service, but he had no action attached to it. And somewhere in all that, the religious leaders recognize that he's speaking of them because they asked him in the beginning of this. He is continuing to answer the question of who do you think give you this authority? Then he tells us the story again of the vineyard owner who then, of course, has evil tenant farmers for which husbandmen, for which then he sends people to go and collect the fruit and they have no interest in giving it to him. And in that particular story, obviously in the parable, the religious leaders are actually the evil tenant farmers who are ultimately going to throw Jesus out of Jerusalem and kill him outside the city gates. That had been prophesied a thousand years before in Psalms. So in both of those cases, you could see, if you will, Jesus saying the religious leadership of the day is like. But now Jesus turns it because there's a lot more people there than just the religious leaders. There's the students he was actually teaching when he was interrupted by these guys in the first place. And he has something to say to everyone here. And notice now he turns to the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, I want to do this for a second first. I want to read through this one more time and then we'll develop it. And there's, of course, a couple of things that really we kind of would, would bear forth some explanation because we kind of go, what's up with the guy that didn't have clothes, you know, the wedding clothes, and why was he treated so poorly? Because we can't understand it in our own culture. Now, now but let me say this. There's an important word that we need to play out here because there's a very fundamental teaching, and that is many are called, but few are chosen. And, of course, there's a lot of people who take that in a lot of different directions. They use it to talk about how God hand-selects some for heaven and some for hell. And they try to use a text like this to justify it, which really, to be sad, is nothing could be further from the truth of the intent of this particular parable. So let me start with this. The term called in the Greek is a simple word, and the word is kaleho. Try that word, kaleho. Give it a try. Kaleho. Simple word, right? Now, kaleho, like called, means called. Did you get that? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to point out every time that it appears in our text. And then I'm going to ask you a simple question. This is a quiz you're guaranteed to pass if you have one ear open and your brain engaged. And that is, I'm going to ask you, what does kaleho mean? So what does kaleho mean again? Called. Did you get it? When Jesus says at the end of this particular text, many are called, it's in the past tense there, the word will be kleto, but it's the base word, kaleho. Many are called, the word is kaleho, and kaleho means called. Did you get that? So look at it with me. Here are our verses again. Jesus answered and he spoke to them by parables and he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out servants, the words doulos, to call. Kaleho. What does kaleho mean? Call. Good. Those who were invited. The word is kaleho, which means called. So he sent out servants to call those who were called to the wedding. Are you with me so far? We got called and called. But notice it tells us in verse 3, they were not willing to come. So then he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, kaleho, and kaleho means, see, I prepared my dinner. And look at it, it seems to be a big one because there are oxen, plural, fatted cattle, that's plural. I like it already. He doesn't say here that I've got my vegetables all stirred up with all due respect, but he does say I've got my meat. I've got my meat all taken care of. I'm prepared. And they're killed. Things are ready. Come to the wedding. But it says they made light of it, sent the, uh, they went their own way, one to his own farm, another to his own business. The word, by the way, for what it's worth there is the word emporia. Uh, it really means merchandise. He went back to his stuff. Some people went actually to their farms. Some people actually went back to their stuff. The rest seized the servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. When he heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out, uh, he sent out his armies. Notice he has more than one army. Destroyed those murderers. No, wait a minute. The murderers were who? They were the people who were originally Kaleho, and Kaleho means called. Did you get that? The people he had called who refused wound up becoming murderers, at least some of them. And he says, you know, uh, it's murderers and burned up their city, verse 8. And he said to his servants, the wedding is now ready, but those who were invited, and invited is the word Kaleho, and Kaleho means called. Those who were called were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite. And that word is kaleho, which means called. 
invite them then to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways, gathered together all who found them both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And then, of course, we get to the issue of this guy without it, and we'll talk about his clothing. And then in our last verse, again, many are called Kaleho, and Kaleho means called. You get that. Now, here's the point of it, is that Jesus now has gone from teaching about the religious leadership is like a disobedient son who's rebellious and a bunch of really bad tenant farmers who are ultimately going to pull the son out and kill him, who, by the way, the son of the guy who properly owns the land, to this particular one where he tells us the kingdom of heaven is like. Did you notice in this that he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like drudgery, like work, like getting your teeth pulled. The kingdom of heaven is like going to the doctor. The kingdom of heaven is like finishing a day of work, you know, and having to work extra hours. It's interesting that when Jesus now brings in the kingdom of heaven, it's very, very different from what we saw in the other two cases. In the other two cases, there's, a dis- there's obviously a dysfunctional family because we have a dis- rebellious son in the first one. And then the second one, we have a really bad workplace because the son of the owner gets murdered. In this case, understand Jesus looking at everyone now, not just to the religious leaders. He goes, do you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Do you even know? We might say the best term for us might be just Christianity. What is it like? Is it like church and things you don't get to do? No, granted, there are standards and there is a law just to uphold. But notice Jesus doesn't say what the kingdom of heaven really looks like. What it's really like is just a club, a social club. A place where we all talk about what we don't get to do anymore. The kingdom of heaven is like a place where we submit to a whole new set of rules, and that's what it's about. Now, granted, there again, there are rules, there are standards, there are laws. But he says, do you get what the kingdom of heaven is like? It's like a feast. Now, today, the closest thing we have to a feast, because normally, I mean, when was the last time you used that word? Now, maybe if you eat with me, you might get there. Because there are places we go and go, oh boy, that's a feast. Brazilian barbecue? That's a feast. Does anyone know what that is? You sit down and they just keep bringing you barbecued meat. It's amazing. I'm not shaped like an orange yet. No, no get this. The idea here is we, the term we would most likely use is party. But the problem is party means usually something kind of, well, we wouldn't want to say in a church, right? There's a lot of words we don't use in the church that God came up with. Like, for instance, pleasure. The word Eden, like the Garden of Eden. Cheden means pleasure. The problem is it seems like the world took the word. Do you know what I mean? It's like the world says, now we... If we say the word pleasure, you almost kind of go, mm, what does that mean? But imagine, go back to when you were a kid if you came from a healthy home. Remember what a party was like? Where it was like it was a happy time and it was carefree and there was so much fun and so much joy and everyone was running around and things were good if you came from a healthy home. And it was like a place where there wasn't a care in the world and you were excited because you didn't know what presents you had gotten yet. And, you know, and there was maybe that person you liked that you wanted to hang out with that showed up. And you just realized somebody had really gone out of their way just to try to make that day yours. Jesus goes, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's like a place of complete and overflowing joy. It is a place where we actually get to feast. It isn't a place of want. It's a place of actually of abundance. It's not a place of drudgery. It's a place of celebration. And he goes, but we need to take it beyond that because he tells us it's not just a particular, it's not just any feast. It's not just any party. And somewhere by the 80s, by the way, the word party became like a noun and a verb. Did you notice? Now it's like we go, now we go to the party and we party. But I mean, somewhere now it became all kinds of things. But in the beginning, it was just, it was, an, it was a celebration. That was the whole point. But he tells us it's a specific kind of celebration. But let me start with this before we even develop that. Do you really see your walk with the Lord that way? Or is it drudgery? Is church drudgery? Is it something you go, oh, well, we have to go somewhere. Let's find the place that's the least. Kind of like going to the dentist. Let's find the place that's the least painful. That's the least expensive. That doesn't take the most time. Some place where I can kind of pop in, get my teeth all clean and smiley, and then out I go. I don't want one of those places where you sit in and you have to listen to a drill for an hour. Is that what church is? Is that what you walk with the Lord is? Well, then you are missing it. Because Jesus is first of all, and I remind you, he's already talked about what has happened with the religious leadership of the day and what they've done in their irresponsibility and irreverence. And now he turns to the people and goes, you guys got to see the difference because a real walk with God is about a celebration. 
As a matter of fact, it tells us in Psalm 1611 that in his presence is the fullness of joy. Not just some, literally an overflowing. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it can't be just the bad word, because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he tells us this is the kind of feast it is. The biggest of feasts. The mother of all feasts. The feasts of all feasts. Because it's the wedding feast. And no, and I mean, if you think about the events in your life, in most cultures, it is the biggest event, if you think about it. Well, traditionally, until about 50 years ago, it was assumed if you got married, it was going to happen once, so you might as well do it up well. And so what you did is you went crazy with it. Now we've got YouTube channels and we've got, you know, cable channels and satellite channels that are like wedding.com, where the whole thing is like, let's just watch how they turn, you know, and, and it sets these crazy precedents about how a guy has to propose to his wife, right? And whether it's skydiving or they've, you know, they scuba dive to the bottom of the ocean and it's written in clamshells or, I mean, it's amazing the things now that, you know, there's like, you know, there's this whole, you know, crowd that bursts into song and, you know, an honor you know, does something with an ice palace. It is crazy how these things start to happen. And that's just the engagement. And then it's like the whole wedding thing where you have to watch the, you know, this person comes up on a horse and carriage and this person on another steed and all the men do this. And, you know, there was a year we did 55 weddings in the Central Coast. 55. I mean, that's double hitters and triple hitters. You get that. I mean, and of course, there are some that try to outdo others. And okay, I'm going to come out on a boat and you're going to tape my shoes in. And then I don't know how I'm going to walk. And, and it is amazing how some people really want to make it a big deal. But let's add that to the Middle East where it's everything. The town you're from stops. And you get paid. You get paid time off to go to a wedding. If you could actually get a wedding every week because they're usually a week long. then that's, you know, if you think about that, that's 52 weddings. You're not working and getting paid for it. I don't know how that works. But you realize everybody in the town is invited to this thing. And there are responsibilities. I mean, we have some today. There's assumptions that, that are made. But the first of them is the father. The father of the groom is responsible for certain things. And one of the things he's responsible for is clothing the men's party. Well, that's what we usually have today. The, the father of the bride often pays for the wedding. I'm not sure how that what kind of works out. But I do know this. 2,000 years ago, the father was responsible for giving every person in the entire wedding party a, an outfit. Now, they were all kind of white moo-moos, so the good news is, you, you know, they were all going to look the same. I mean, everyone kind of looked, but the idea of it was you were all supposed to look pure because the whole glory of the whole wedding was the idea of this purity of the relationship, the commitment, and the bride that was being brought. Those things are fundamental. So everyone in the party, starting with the elders and then, of course, everyone that would follow, they were all given clothing as they walked in. And in the idea of it, so you can imagine, can you imagine how expensive that would be? You might have had a smaller wedding if you started thinking about that. All right, well, I tell you, if we're going to get married here, five people are invited and here's your moo-moo. You know, I mean, in those days, the question is, who would do that? Well, any man that was retaining his honor. But this particular account is even bigger. Because this isn't just a man who threw a wedding. Who threw the wedding in this particular case? It was a king. Now, if there's going to be the biggest of all celebrations, a wedding in a person's life, could there be a bigger one than the king throwing it? Because instead of your household or your neighborhood, the king does it for his entire kingdom. In which case now, we're not just talking about making sure that you have, you know, all of the sort of, you know, those kind of chafing dishes and so forth with the little, you know, hot pots underneath it to make sure that everything's cooked. I mean, by now we're actually talking about, we're talking about you know, removing the herd of cattle from a, from a hill. Because now you want, do you guys remember, it wasn't that long ago that Will and Kate got remarried, got married, and remember how big of a deal that was. But imagine, if you will, now we're talking 2,000 years. We just put that and we Middle Easternize it. Now the thing gets to be a very big deal. And much of Asia, it becomes a very, very big deal. As a matter of fact, in places like India and all of the sort of Indian culture there, it's like a week long. And the wedding service itself is like six to eight hours long. And that's just the service. And all of a sudden, then, you know, like you're spending the night and then the next thing you know, you're like five years older and you're leaving there and you're waiting for the next wedding. I mean, there's something that starts to happen. Now, here's the whole point of it. It starts with this. There is a king and he seems to be an honorable king and he seems like to be a, a decent king because he's inviting people to his wedding and he wants to make sure the kingdom's involved. Notice he arranged the wedding for his son. 
So what's the first thing he does? He starts to send out invitations. That only makes sense. And that word again is kaleho, and kaleho means called. So I'm going to send out invitations. Now, as he sends out invitations in the first case, it seemed we would assume they're going to be dignitaries, ambassadors, honored guests. I mean, the same way that think about the people that went to Will and Kate's wedding. Chances are, were you invited? I wasn't invited, but, you know, I was just making my way here, so I didn't expect it. You know, and, and I'm not trying to breed, you know, I don't want to make that any more bitter than you probably. Um, and the whole point of it is, is that we wouldn't expect to come per se, but we would have expected people that may have represented us or at least people that, that were higher profile, dignitaries. Well, in the same way, we don't know exactly who it was that was invited at the first, but we do know this. They were invited. That's the first thing we read. And as he was the case, we get now, of course, to verse 3. We're really moving up quickly on this. And in verse 3, we see, by the way, that he sends out his servants. He doesn't wait for them to go and hunt it down. Notice the king is the one who initiates. Did you notice that? I mean, let's face it, today, I mean, there are certain places where I know you can kind of get on Facebook. Guess what? We're engaged and people just pour in and go, when's the wedding and how do I get there? In this case, the king is making sure that they know they're invited. He's openly sending out invitations. And he sends out his doulas. That's the word for servant until we get to the end. It'll be the word every time until he actually sends them to a punitive response. And he says, now go and invite. That word is kaleho, and kaleho means called. Call those who are invited, kaleho, that are called to the wedding. Now I want you to recognize this. That as the servants are sent, their sense of people who I assume here might have expected some form of invitation, much like the religious leadership. But as it's the case, I want you to recognize this, that our God is a God who calls people. He initiates. And by the way, that's very different from every other religion. You're aware of that, right? In every other religion, you initiate. You know, you recognize something inherently that you're not right with God, so i got to do something about it. So maybe if I pray enough and give enough and do enough and make my trip to wherever I have to go and make sure that I'm charitable and maybe my good outweighs my bad, but you're doing all the performing, hoping somewhere in all of this to catch God's attention so where he looks and goes, yeah, that'll do. Come on in. But what kind of relationship is that? You know what that is? At best, that's a boss. That somehow in it, you're really hoping you don't get fired by the end of the day. You're performing and saying, here's the work I've done. And we can still do that with God where we still think, well, God, I prayed a lot today, so this better be a good day. Like, like that's our paycheck is whatever God's goodness is to us. But then we realize in Scripture it says when we were sinners, enemies in our heart to God, we had declared war against God. We stood on the other side as his opponent. He still sent Jesus to die for us. And I understand the difference between Jesus and every other religion is God took the first step. He did the work and then asks you, will you say yes to this? And in this case, we have a God who is performing. And as this God is performing, he is offering. He is offering something to people and he's saying, will you come? It's that simple. You know, it says in Psalm, for what it's worth, Psalm 32, 9, don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding and they must be harnessed with bit and bridle or else they just won't come near you. He's like, you realize one of the problems with these dumb animals, and I'm not trying to pick on them, he's going, don't be like them, is that if you really want them to come to you, you kind of have to make it happen yourself. He goes, don't be like that. It says, by the way, in Psalm 46, verse 8, come, behold the works of the Lord. In Psalm 66, 5, come and see the works of the Lord. It says in Isaiah 1:18, come, let us reason together. One of my favorites is Isaiah 55, 730 years, if you will, before Jesus starts to set foot on earth. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And you with no money, come buy and eat. You with no money, he says, come buy wine and milk without money or without cost. He says, why do you work so hard for what is not bread and labor so much for what does not satisfy? He says, listen, listen intently to me. And your soul will delight in the richest fare. God's like, aren't you hungry? I have what you're looking for. Aren't you thirsty? I have what you're looking for. And you're asking yourself, well, what's it going to cost me? God's like, I'm paying the cost. I'm asking you to come. That's what I'm asking. And I realize how many times God would say in the book of Isaiah, time and time again, I've held up my arms to you and you wouldn't have me. 
I've held my arms to a disobedient and rebellious people, but you wouldn't have me. Or even after all of this, his arms are still open wide or his hand is still outstretched. This is not about God saying, you know, I never wanted you. This is God saying, will you please come? That's it. That's your part. I've done the work. I've prepared the feast. Do you want that? You know, it tells me in the book of Proverbs, he with a cheerful countenance is like a continual feast. And I kind of like that. The idea that there's something when we're satisfied and overflowing, it's like we're continually at a feast. Now for me, I'm a heavy eater, so I can get that. But I can't help but relate it to this and think, he's like, don't you really want that need met? That hunger that's inside of you, that's eating away at you. Because you're really trying to look cool about it. And we know our culture here. We really want to make sure that we keep that stiff upper lip and we don't show the desperation that's really in our hearts, if we're going to be honest. But God's like, I know that hunger. I put that hunger inside of you. Because there's only one place it could be filled, and that's the table of the Lord. And that thirst. Hey, look, if you stop eating after a while, you feel weak. That's obvious. You stop drinking anything like water, it gets, it, and it's like things start to happen even heavier and quicker. You lose your ability to reason. You actually, your eyesight starts to go. All kinds of things start to suffer. You see somebody dehydrated. I mean, the first symptoms, by the way, seldom speak of water. They just speak of, of abilities and reason. It's like, don't you, aren't you tired of being like that? Where you feel like your whole life is one where you're kind of under some form of well, you're just not sober and you can't think and you can't feel like the way you know you should and you're not thriving because you can't thrive when you're like that. But it doesn't say here, yo, I mean, we read it as ho, but today, where at least where I came from originally, it'd be like, yo, it's the same thing. It's like, hey, hey, who out there is thirsty? He doesn't say, I've hand-selected a handful of people, and then doesn't, the rest of you doesn't really care. He's like, look at, are you thirsty? That's the qualification. Are you hungry? That's your qualification. Well, if you feel like you can't afford it, that's okay. I didn't ask for you to pay. I'm asking for you to come. Are you hungry? Come. Are you thirsty? Come. Jesus would say on the last and great day of the feast where they do the water libation, the Feast of Tabernacles, he would say, if anyone thirsts, he doesn't say if certain people thirst, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Because if you are willing to be honest about the thing inside of you that is so craving, God says, if you're willing to be honest, just come. I'll take care of the rest. The only thing that's left is your choice. You know what's interesting? Do you know how the book of Revelation ends? It tells us, and the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And whoever hears, come. And him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Yet Jesus looked at the people around him, and he would say in John 5, 40, But you're not willing to come to me, so you would have life. Jesus didn't say, you know, I have no interest in giving you life. He says, look, at, I'm asking for you. But you just don't want to come. Now, there's reasons not to. And we're going to see that here. But let's be honest, the first and foremost is selfish pride. But please understand, it was not the king's will that they didn't come. As a matter of fact, notice it says he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and notice it says at the end of verse 3, they were not willing to come. The word willing, of course, is a word we'd be familiar with because it's the word will or desire or pleasure. Or des- and the whole point of it is the same one when we ask about God's will. What is God's will? The word is thalaho. It's based on the word pleasure. What pleases God? And we read this. It is not God's will that any would perish. Any. Do you know who any is? You fit into any. You're aware of that, right? It's not God's will that you would perish. And it doesn't matter where you've come from or what you've done. The question is, are you willing to come? It's not God's will that any would perish. 
but that all would come to repentance. It tells us in First Timothy that God desires, same word, thaleho, desires all men to be saved. He desires for you to be saved. That's what he wants. And can I just dare say, much like this story, the king is not going to get everything he wants. Because he's calling these people because he wants them to come. But what's clear is they have no interest in coming. So notice it says in verse 3, they were not willing to come. Now, what would you do? You just, you're a raging man. You have a son. And that son is somebody that is your pride and joy. And you want this day to be perfect for him. And you want to honor him because he's been a decent, upright guy. So you arrange a wedding and you invite the guests. And it seems to me that none of them are willing to come. How do you respond? Do you think, well, fat chance. First thing is we are unfriended. The second thing is I'm starting a website called IHateYou.com. I mean, where do you go with it? You know what this king does? He re-invites them. Don't you find that strange? This is not only a king who seems to love his son, but this is a king who seems to love the people he invites, even though they're not willing to love him back. It's unrequited. So verse 4 says, And he sent out other servants. And he says, tell those who are invited. Remember those guys? Look at it. There's a sense of urgency now. He doesn't say, look at you stupid people. What's wrong with you? There's no vengeance in his voice here. But he further pleads with them and shows them the urgency of this. Much like what you would see with John the Baptist when he says, look at the, the Lord is on his way and you need to make the path straight. It is time to get serious. He says, please come. I have everything ready. You know, the only thing missing from this feast is you. Everything else is there. Bands hired. Halls taken care of. Caters have gone mental. Decorations are beautiful. And you just won't come. Please come. And their answer is in verse 5. The first thing it says is they made light of it. The word there for what it's with is amalecho as a negative malecho means of interest. It means that they took no interest in it. And you know this. But first of all, is that what you're inviting people to when you go and speak to them about Jesus? If you do speak to them about Jesus, are you telling them, look, there is a God who wants you and he's calling out to you right now. And he really has a life that is like a continual feast for you. Now, that doesn't mean it won't be without challenges, but he'll be your peace in all of those challenges. So you're actually going to be able to ride the storms and the house is going to stand. What about you? Will you come? And there are going to be those who are aware of it. They're going to make light of it. They're going to be like, whatever. Like, I have any need of that in my life. But I want to remind you, these were the honored guests. They made light of it, but it gets worse. They went their ways, and again, some, by the way, to their farm. That's their business. And some, by the way, again, to their emporia, to their stuff. And can I say, this is what's going to make it hard for you to say yes to God. Because you're like, but you don't understand my business. This is my life. And this is what I'm about. This is what I do. This is what I have. It's who I am. So I don't have time for this feast of yours. I know it's the king. Who cares? As far as I'm concerned, my life's big enough as it is. I don't really need a king in my life. I don't need somebody telling me what to do. I've got my own business. I tell other people what to do. I've got my stuff. I can tell it what to do. If I want to throw it away, I throw it away. But the sad part about it is that's actually the least volatile of all of the responses. You go tell people about Jesus and there are going to be some. I'm like, I want you to know God is inviting you to come. And there are those that are like you and your little fairy tale. I have no interest in submitting to a king. Which, of course, is a bit ironic here, since we're the United Kingdom and we have a queen. Anyway, but notice it says in regards to the rest, verse 6, the rest seized the servants. And it's an interesting term, by the way. Kratejo, like kratis, like given power, like a democrat, which is demos means people. Democrat literally means, if you will, power granted to the people. In the simplest sense, might I say it this way. 
the people who were invited bullied them. That's the term that's used. They exercised given strength over them. They used, they bullied them, if you will, in senses of, uh, uh, well, if you will, sort of political means. So what they did is they told you to shut up and they were going to get you fired if not. What they did is they tried to find ways to make sure that if you're going to be a Christian, and I've learned this, by the way, you probably have too, that the world doesn't seem to have a problem you being a Christian until you become a real one, you know, one that's actually full of the joy of Jesus and contagious, because if you're really infected, then you're contagious. And, and understand, at that point, then, it, you know, that, I, mean, I remember my first day here, one of my first days, we walked around towards the Portobello Market. I've got a shirt on that says, Jesus is the way. I mean, you know, I'm just kind of like that. Uh, and, and the guy, uh, I walk out, I, I live literally have just exited, you know, the uh, the underground station there. And the, there's like a group of like three Jamaican guys. And they kind of look and they're like, yo, brother man, brother man, you better put that cross away. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, man, you don't do that here. And I'm like, well, and it's too bad. They're like, and then they were, they were like, they're like totally trying to intimidate. I'm not, I'm not the easiest person to intimidate. So I kind of look and I'm like, whatever, you know, look at, by the way, for instance, I'm not worried about this. If I go and meet my Savior and my Lord, my King, I'm good. And what about you? I mean, if you want to try to take me down and we go down together, who are you facing? Oh, that wow! Welcome to welcome to London. And there is that kind of political bullying. It's the browbeating, right? It's the person that you know the moment you're. And this is what normally stops Christians from sharing, is they don't have to get any worse than this. You know, they just know that someone's just going to go, hmm, going to give you that look of disapproval, and somehow that's enough. But it gets worse than that. Not only did they do that, we read here that they treated them spitefully. Now that word, orbizo, if you will, that, now, now we're talking about a word that actually speaks about physical violence. So now there's actually physical bullying going on. In the first case, it's just kind of the social kind of nuances of just keeping you silent. But now it's like, look, it, if you say another word, I'm going to punch you in the face. Some of you are from countries, I believe, where that actually was a reality. There's any country has places that are that this is a reality. Some places it just seems like it's the whole country. And it's one thing when you're saying I'm inviting you to church because that seems safe or use the word God because people can identify, they can multiply the definitions all they want. But when you start talking about Jesus, you've noticed that things get a lot, a lot more electrified. So servants... Are, are in some cases are browbeaten, in some cases they're physically beaten, and then it says, and they killed them. So here's the crazy part. Don't miss this. Why are these guys getting beat up? Why are these guys getting intimidated? Because they're inviting you to a party? Is that the weirdest thing? Could you imagine somebody inviting you to a party, even if you don't want to go, beating them up? Go, man, you know, you invite me to that party one more time. I'm going to rip your head off. Now, really? You know, there's this old Indian saying that says, if you throw a, American Indian, if you throw a, a rock in a pack of wild dogs, the one that barks the loudest is the one hit the hardest. You start sharing Jesus with someone, and someone kind of goes, whatever, and then another person just starts freaking out. Chances are they're the one you hit a nerve with. But the person you hit a nerve with often wants to fire back and try to hit your nerve or two. Or five. But the strangest part is I'm going, please, there is a king and he's got a feast and he wants you to be a part of it. And you're like, if you say that again, I'm going to kill you. And some people are like that. Friends in northern India, they were surrounded by a group of militants. And there was a man and his wife and his children and they surrounded their station wagon, poured petrol over the whole thing and set it on fire and watched them all roasted alive. And the only thing these people did was tell them about Jesus. That was it. There was no other reason at all for these people to have a problem with them other than that one thing. And that's, that's just one of, of, you know, many, many stories. When people talk about, you know, the bullying that goes on, and everyone knows there's bullying that goes on, and when they talk about it for the choices they make in their life, and people have a problem with you looking like this, or dressing like this, or acting like this, if you added all of those things together, and you compare them to the martyrdom of people who call themselves Christians, who really follow Christ, you will find that everything else pales in comparison, but nobody's talking about that. Nobody's talking about the people that are thrown into pits and buried alive 
are thrown into places that are like, you know, hills of scorpions or the places where they actually just start skewering them or or hanging them from their own crosses. Well, I mean, the things that the people do that they get away with because they're Christians. I have a friend who gave his life to Jesus Christ, who lived just outside of Gaza, and he fled for his life because the punishment in Palestine for accepting Christ as a former Muslim is being skinned alive in the marketplace. And not just you, your whole family. He has a bunch of kids and a wife and to keep them safe. And now we've helped extradite several of them out of the country. You know, he could have become a Muslim from a Christian. Nobody was going to persecute him for it. But the point is, is the moment you start to follow Jesus and you actually start to invite, and you know this is what keeps you quiet. And you're not inviting them to, hey, why don't you just stop sleeping with your girlfriend? Why don't you stop doing drugs? What you're saying is, why don't you come to the feast? That's it. So they beat him. So what does the king do? Verse 7. When he heard about it, he was furious. Or gizzo, or to get the idea. He was enraged. And he sent out his armies and destroyed the murders. Notice that the people he invited are now murderers, some of them, and burned up their city. One city they all came from. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those that were invited were not worthy. Invited, kaleho. Kaleho means called. Those that were called aren't worthy. But let me ask you, what made it worthy? What made them unworthy? Did you realize worthiness rests on willingness? That's it. The call was there, but they weren't willing. He's like, you know, all you had to do was say yes. That's all I'm asking. If you said yes, you'd be completely worthy. And you think, but I don't feel worthy. Of course not, because it's grace. For all the horrible things you may have ever done, for the guilt that you feel like you've carried, for the filth you feel that you drag around with you, don't worry about that, because what we're going to find here in a moment is that anybody is invited to this feast. The question is, are you willing to come? Because it's the one thing that you're going to be held responsible for. First and foremost. He says, look, at wedding's ready. But the people I invited, they just wouldn't come. So I need you to do this. Go out into the highways. Notice it's not just a highway. Highways tells us they went in every direction. They went every place they could. And as many as you find, as many. Now, wait a minute. He doesn't say find the white ones or the black ones or the rich ones or the poor ones or find the ones that seem nice. Look, let's go to libraries and find people who could read or let's go and find the people who look like they're petting puppies and being kind to people. Or even let's go find people that own things so that if they wind up at church, it'll be really good. You know, what he's saying is, look, if if they're breathing, invite them. You know this, because when Jesus sends his disciples out after his resurrection, he'll tell them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to what? Every creature, is what he says. Every creature. Does that mean that he wants you out there trying to find the groundhogs? Why creature? Because, you know, in every culture, somewhere down the line, there's some people that they consider less than human. Have you noticed that? It's the slave. It's the terrorist. It's the whatever. It's the person that's chosen some form of lifestyle and they're like, well, there's humans and then there's that. And he says, everyone needs to hear. Go into the highways and if you see them, invite them. It's that simple. If you see them, invite them. Notice, by the way, you don't have to try to pick who you think is ready or who is willing. You're kind of, well, I don't know about this one. I don't know if this one, I want this one at the feast with me. He goes, look, if you're going to be a decent and upright, good and faithful servant, then just do this. Go find him and invite him. That's it. What if they say no? That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to invite. Their responsibility is to choose. So the servants went out, verse 10, into the highways, gathered together all they found, both bad and good. Did you notice that? So that tells me that my personal goodness, which, by the way, the Bible makes clear there's no one good, not one, in and of our own personal performance. God has not demanded that because he actually wants to give us his goodness. There's the good news. That's the great news. And so what that tells us is they were indiscriminate in their invitations. They just went out and said, who who wants to come? And they found both bad and good. Notice the bad is listed first. And the wedding hall now was filled. But then there's this last addendum to this whole thing, and we close this up. The king comes out to see his guests. 
Now, I remind you, the king is the one who's prepared the wedding. He's invited everyone to the wedding because it's his son who's getting married. And he sees this man who's not in a wedding gown. Now, I remind you, it is the father of the groom's responsibility to clothe everyone. The question here is, well, do you think this guy actually had what was necessary to clothe everyone? Let me remind you, who is the one who's throwing the party here? It's the king. If there's anybody who's got the bankroll, it's the king. So you can't tell me here that this is because the poor guy was just poor and he couldn't afford the outfit because notice the king asks the man and the man was speechless, which tells us the man had no legitimate excuse. Let's face it, if the king asks, why don't you have a wedding gown on? And if you were to, wouldn't you say, I couldn't afford it. I walked down Oxford Street, you know, all those places going out of business, those Italian suit places. I couldn't even afford one of those. I went to a Tesco and I went up to find the stuff, the two stuff or whatever, and I, oh, I couldn't find one there. I went to the charity shops. I couldn't afford anything. There's none of that. That would have been at least a reasonable excuse in our culture. But in theirs, the king was the one giving them. So who doesn't wear a wedding gown at a wedding? What's that? Yes, exactly. Somebody who actually is protesting the wedding. That's the point. They're there to make a statement. And the statement they're making is, I don't want this wedding. I don't agree with this wedding. I'm not for this wedding. Can you see why the king responds the way he does? He goes, this is to honor my son. He is in love and he's committed to this beautiful bride. And this is to be a day where we honor the commitment he's made to that bride. And you are saying, no way. No, hear me on this. Because this becomes a fundamental part of our culture as we bring this to close. Is that they say, well, look, at this is who I am. And he has to receive me for who I am. Isn't that fair? And if I don't agree with God and if I don't like his standards, well, then he has to bend. But the problem is, if you're telling God to receive you for who you are and you make those demands, you're not receiving him for who he is. So how could you set that standard? So you need to receive me for who I am. You can see Jesus going, he needs to receive me for who I am. And I'm the king's son. I'm the prince of peace. Why in the world would you want to protest this wedding? And yet the king still looks and he says, remember, mind you, it's the king. And he says, friend, friend, why friend? Because if the man were willing to agree with the wedding, he was still, the king's heart was still open to him. And of course, Jesus, we know from Psalm 41.9, it was prophesied a thousand years prior that the one who I broke bread with has lifted his heel against me, my own familiar friend. Zechariah makes clear, this was not an enemy. This was a close friend. Jesus will look at Judas and be betrayed by a kiss. My friend, and Jesus says, by the way, before Judas leaves, in John 16, I don't call you guys servants, I call you friends. Because servants don't know what their master's about, but I let you know. I'm letting you know because I'm letting you into my heart. Let's face it, there's a lot of people we know, but a friend we let into our hearts. Jesus goes, I'm letting you guys into my heart. And the king looks and he's like, friend, why, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you agree with this? Why would you really stand against this? And the man was speechless. There's only one thing left to do now. If he keeps that man, hear me, hear me, hear me. If he keeps that man in that wedding, in the, in the, in the hall, he dishonors his son and the bride to do so. So he has a choice. Do you honor the son and the bride? And to do that, he needs to be removed. Would you want somebody, you know, like when they say, is there anyone who has any concern over this wedding, any reason why these two should not be married? Chances are you probably didn't invite a bunch of people that would probably stand up and go, I have an objection. I mean, unless you really didn't want to be married. You wouldn't do that. And this man, he's like, you know, no. This is just isn't, I don't want this. I don't agree with this. To do that, I don't agree with you being king. So bind him hand and foot. Throw him out into the darkness. What would it be like to be out there when those doors are closed and to hear the singing and to hear the celebration and the joy and to realize you could have been a part of that, but you weren't willing 
know, it's interesting. He says it'll be wailing. I get that. Interesting. The first time we see wailing is when Abraham loses Sarah. It's over a loss of something that was dear. Dearest. The last time you see it is people wailing, if you will, over the loss of Babylon, because to them that was the most important thing to them in Revelation. But I found the interesting thing was gnashing of teeth. Because, of course, coming from a place where we've experienced a bit of pain in our lives, you kind of always think, well, gnashing of teeth only exclusively speaks about great pain, right? You're really hurting and you're like, oh, what's interesting is, listen to these three verses. Psalm 35, 16 says, with ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Psalm 37, 12 says, the wicked plot against the just and gnash at them with their teeth. Psalm, in Acts 7, when Stephen is given his, uh, his, his well, it's called the Pedersha, when he's actually giving, remember, the whole uh, history of Israel and then challenging him to say, why are you hardening your hearts like this? It says, those that heard these things were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, this wasn't people in great pain. This was people who openly declared their animosity to the people before him. And I think, what would it be like to stand in, in the end of it all Look at God and, and just grit your teeth at me. I'm like, you're just, I hate you. But don't tell me it wasn't because they weren't invited in. They were invited in, but under the pretense that the king needs to be king. And Jesus says, so let me tell you, many are called, but few are chosen. Let me ask you this. Of all of those that were called, who was chosen? Those that were willing. They were all called. But the difference was some said yes. You know that. You get that call and you look at your phone and you see caller ID and you have that choice to make. No, you learn a lot about a person when they don't recognize the number, right? Are you a risk taker? Or you're like, mm, if they really care, they'll leave a voicemail, right? No, we keep getting these calls. You know, from like people that are like, were you involved in a car accident? And my 13-year-old just loves them. She's like, give me the phone. She's like, yes, I'm getting in one right now because you're calling me. You know, she just, she loves, if you knew her, you'd understand. And, and I just, I, I just think about how crazy it is. But what if it was like, what if the phone were there and it was, it said Jesus? And you knew it really was. Would you answer? If you knew that. You're like, well, I'm afraid that if, if, if I answer, he's going to say, this is what you need to stop doing, and this is what you need to stop doing, and here are the corrections that you need to make, and then maybe somewhere after all of that we can hang out. You really think that's what he's going to say first? Can I say what Jesus would say? He was, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come to me, you burdened. Come to me, you hungry. Come to me, you thirsty. And receive the cleansing of the Lord. And then go and sin no more. But I've learned this. My God's a good fisherman. He catches his fish and then he cleans them. As we go to prayer, let me ask you something. Have you even said yes to this Jesus? Have you come? Have you come to the feast? Is, if you have said yes, is that walk of yours a feast like God intended? A place of contentedness and overflow? A place of satisfaction and joy and celebration? Or is it a place of duty? Duty's work. I mean, other than myself in this room, I don't know if any of you actually really do what you do because you just love it. Most of you probably get up earlier than you want to and stay longer than you want to to listen to some guy you'd rather not listen to or a gal to do things you really don't take great joy in and you do it well enough so that you can go and do the same thing again tomorrow when there's something inside of you that thinks if I do this long enough maybe I can actually get paid to not do this when I'm old enough. Is that really what walking with Jesus is like? Well, if I just do all the good stuff now, or the hard stuff now, the dutiful stuff now, maybe, just maybe, I can get to heaven and we can retire. But your walk with Christ was never intended to be that. The kingdom of heaven is like a feast. And not just any feast. The greatest of all feasts. The wedding feast. 
And not just the greatest of not just the greatest of all feasts, but the greatest of all feasts by the greatest of all party throwers. The king. And he's inviting you today. Under his kingship. To the greatest celebration that never ends. Starting now. That's the choice you need to make. The Bible says, if you're willing to confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus. And believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. He's going to save you. Adopt you and make you his own. You're not just invited as somebody that was walking on the highway. You get to be the bride. There's the crazy part. But that's the choice you need to make. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this amazing text and the depth and the riches of what you have in it. But I pray for every one of us here, Lord. First, for those who've made claim to you and maybe they've lost their way. Maybe they're in a place where they recognize there was a day when church was like a feast. Walking with you was like a feast. It was like being in love. But somewhere in all of that, it seems like the fanfare has dropped and it's much more commitment and duty than it is celebration and joy. And I pray that today, even as David in the depth of his own unrepentant life and then finally would have to be called on it, he got to that point where he would say, restore to me the joy of myself, your salvation. But first, before that, he would cry out, create in me a clean heart. Because he knew that the problem was his heart. That you hadn't changed. His heart had. And I pray for every person here who's made claim to you, God, today that you create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us. And restore to us the joy of this celebration. Please, God. Because we recognize the hungers that arise and the thirsts that arise when turning from your table can only be met at that table. And there's no other place that can do anything but drink salt water in its place. So, God, please, we turn our hearts to you and say, cleanse them. Make them right with you. And bring us to that place of feasting with you again. At your table. And here in this room, finally, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or you're not sure if you have, I'd like the privilege today of just leading you in a simple prayer. And today you may ask, what does it mean to come? What do I have to do? Well, it just starts with saying yes to the king who's taken the steps to invite you to become part of this amazing life. So I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask for you simply to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. And here it is. God in heaven, I confess to you, I am a sinner. I'm not worthy of this feast. I'm not worthy to be called by name. I'm not worthy to be a part of this, but I don't have to be in the sense of inherently worthy because in the end, the only worthiness you're looking for is my willingness. And I say yes to Jesus, his gift for me on the cross, his payment for me for my sins and guilt and filth and his death for that so that all of my guilty verdict could die with him. And just like Scripture promised, he was buried, and so is my verdict buried. And just like Scripture promised, on the third day he was raised again, so that I could have a brand new life now, a life adopted by the king, betrothed to the Prince of Peace, a life of a continual feast in you. And I know that that means that the world around me, that there will be, strangely enough, even in the religious community, there will be those who think that they're offering you service in their persecution to us. Some will browbeat, some will beat. And there may be even in this room some who may die for their faith in you. Show us the inherent and beautiful worthiness of that. So here, I confess Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I sit now under your throne. 
your lordship, your kingship. They say I'm yours. Have me, please. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say amen. Amen. God, you've heard our prayer today. For those who have said yes, I pray. Give them a fresh hunger for your word. A fresh excitement and love for fellowship. As you tell us, whoever is planted in your house, not just visits, but is planted in your house, will flourish in the courts of their God. Show them the beauty of communicating with you in prayer. And then send them out of here infected to infect the world around us. To invite them to the feast. In Jesus' name. Amen.